they deserve to pay for what they did. But Joseph chooses not the path of revenge, but the path of forgiveness. Which brings up a really important question that we've wrestled with over the course of this series for the last several weeks. What would someone in my situation, how would they respond if they completely trusted God? How would someone in my situation, my circumstances, in my life, dealing with my problems, my issues, how would they respond if they completely trusted God? Because we put ourselves in Joseph's shoes and we we know what we want to answer. But when the, the roles reversed, when the stories flipped, when it's not about Joseph and it's about you and I, then the questions get a little more personal. They get a little more serious. They, they're a little more difficult to answer. And what those questions do is they make a step back from our life, from the story that we're living in the midst of, and ask the question. Because it's easy to do for Joseph. How would I respond if I found myself in Joseph's place? I think a great question would be then, how would someone else respond if they found themselves in my place? dealing with my life and my circumstances. In the story, one of the the questions that continues to come up for me is who is to blame? Who, Who is to blame for Joseph's life? Who is to blame for Joseph being sold into slavery? Who is to blame and who's the 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 root cause for Joseph being thrown into prison? Whose fault is it? And there's some interesting points in this story where we find blame and accusations being thrown around. So in chapter 42, verse 21, the brothers have gone to Egypt for the very first time. And they said to one another, after they've faced Joseph and Joseph pretended not to know them, they said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brothers. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. But we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Question, who do the brothers think is punishing them? Who do the brothers assume is on the other end handing out this punishment? Here we are, we're facing this this kind of persecution. We're just trying to be honest men. We're trying to get grain for our family. We're trying to get food, and we're being punished for it. Who do the brothers think is punishing them? And skipping down just a little bit later, Joseph is sending them off, and he's filled their bag with the money they brought, the silver they brought to pay for the grain. And starting in verse 27, At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw the silver in the mouth of the sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other, trembling, and said, What is this that God has done to us? Isn't it interesting 
they, they find themselves in this interesting circumstance. They find themselves with this question to answer, and their automatic assumption is, well, God has done this to us. Maybe it's God who's punishing us for what we did. Here, God, God put this silver back in our sack. Skipping on a little bit further in the story is Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. Joseph again begins to point to someone else. Then Joseph, verse 4 of 45, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come, close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Remember, at this, year, at this point, Joseph is about 40 years old. It's been over 20 years since his brother sold him into slavery. And here are his brothers. He said, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And it's interesting, the brothers find themselves in this difficult situation and their response is, well, God's done this to us. God's punishing us. God has put us here. God is paying us back. God... And then Joseph on the other end Now, going through prison and everything that he's been through, this is what God's done. God sent me ahead of you so that I could save you. And I wonder what that conversation might have been like if Joseph never got out of prison. And his brothers came to Egypt looking for food, and they got thrown into prison. What, What that conversation would have looked like in a prison cell between the brothers? Would Joseph have seen it the same way? And then towards the end of the story, after their father Jacob has died, Joseph again reassures them, but Joseph said, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So, this question who is to blame? Who caused this? Is it God that caused all of this to work out in this order? Is it Satan? who causes it to work out in this order. And somehow God's still redeeming it. Does this just happen? These are just circumstances that we deal with. And we aren't real sure what to do with it. Or are the people involved in the story the actual cause of it? Joseph, his brothers, his family. 
Even Joseph's father, Jacob, who plays favorites with his son. Who is to blame? And we have this really binary thinking where there are two sides to most things. And we want to say, well, if it's good and it happens, then, well, obviously it's God. And if it's bad and it happens, then it's Satan doing this. And so we're searching for a new job, and we get the new job, and we start on Monday, and man, God has been so good to us, and he's blessed us, and he's provided for us. Or the person who's still looking for that job, and still putting out applications, and man, Satan is really really attacking me and he's getting me down or that person who's in debt and financial struggle and somehow they start to climb out of it man god has blessed us and he's been so good to us and he's taking care of us or that person who's still in debt man satan is just and we have this very binary thinking where we start to think well if it's good and it happens and god's in control and god's doing it and if it's bad and it happens, and then Satan is attacking us and doing it. Or, or God is punishing us. Because that's the situation the brothers find themselves in. Well, this bad is happening, and this is not the way it's supposed to go. This is not the way we see things. And so obviously God is punishing us. God has done this. Why? Why, God, have you done this to me? Joseph sitting in the palace in control with ample amounts of food and grain and his brothers bowing down before him. God's taking care of us. He intended this for good even though you wanted it to be for evil. And I think the reason we like that thinking, good and bad, is because it makes it really easy for us to process difficult situations. It makes it really easy to look at something that happens to us or to our neighbor or to our family and process it and give a simple answer. But I think one of the things you start to learn in life is that system breaks down very quickly. And inevitably, that system will fail. Because the answers that system provides are not rooted very well in God. That system does not work. So several weeks ago, we talked about these three wills of God. The decreative will, God says something and it will be done. God says it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights and it happens. It rains and God sends rain and there's the ark and God saves them through the ark. Then there is the perceptive will of God where God gives these commands to people but it's up to the people whether or not they are going to respond and obey them. And there might be consequences that are immediate, there might not. But it's up to us to follow what God has said. And then finally, there's that permissive will. The things that God allows to happen through other people. That, that God says, this is how the world is supposed to be. This is how it is supposed to work. 
But as human beings, we do have free will. We have the ability to say yes or no and to do it or not. Now, there might be consequences. There might be punishment that comes from it. But in the end, it's our choice. And we live within this tension of a God who is sovereign and is provident and can do anything he wants, is all-powerful, but at the same time gives his creation the ability to make choices and to choose to do right and to do wrong, to choose which direction they're going to head with their life. But inevitably, inevitably, we find ourselves in these situations when we are hurt or someone close to us is hurt and we experience someone doing wrong to us and our inclination is to want to blame. Someone has to be at fault. There has to be a reason this happened. And we need cognitively, we need to think, to know that God's taking care of us and everything is okay as long as we trust him. But the question is what happens when you're doing what you should? When you're making the right decisions? When you're refusing Potiphar's wife time after time after time? And then the accusation comes and you find yourself in prison. And you've done what is good, and you've done what is right, and now you're being punished for it. Someone, someone needs the blame. Someone has to be at fault. And here's what I'll tell you. One of our biggest roadblocks to forgiveness is our need to blame. One of the biggest roadblocks in forgiving other people is our need to blame. To know that we're the ones who got it right. We're the ones who are doing what we're supposed to. And we're the victim. And we ask, well, did... Did Satan cause this? Did Satan end up getting Joseph sold into slavery? Did Satan, was he there getting Joseph thrown into prison? And some big questions. Did Satan cause him to be sold into slavery? I would say no. Did did Satan cause him to be thrown into prison? I would say no. But I do believe there in the midst of it was Satan with his accusation and his blame. There was Satan casting accusation, blaming people for what was done. If you remember back to the beginning and how the Bible begins, there's a story of God's good creation as God creates this garden and he puts man and woman in the midst of it and everything is good. And God has this relationship with his creation. And Satan shows up. And his very first words are words of accusation. 
calling to account the integrity of the Creator. Did God really say that you couldn't eat from any tree in this garden? Did God really say this? That's not true. He calls into question the integrity of God and his care for his creation. God didn't say this, did he? Well, the truth is he just doesn't want you to be like him, to relate to him. And what's fascinating is Satan's first words, these words of accusation against God, and when they eat the fruit, What comes out is now accusation against one another. See, for the first time in God's good creation, man and woman who are one and who are right with God now see another person. They don't see oneness. They see otherness. They see someone here beside me who is different than me. And God asks, What is this that you've done? And man's response is this. Well, it's this woman that you put here with me. Hurling his accusation and his blame, he got that spirit from somewhere. It came from the fruit that the serpent convinced him to eat. That fruit that God told him, if you eat, you're going to die. He eats it. And then he begins to hurl accusations against what God has done. Against this woman that God had given him. And the woman follows suit. Well, it's a serpent that you put here with me. He's the one that deceived me. He's the one that convinced me. And then their children... They follow suit as well, and Cain offers this sacrifice, and Abel offers this sacrifice, and it says, God's pleased with Abel, and he's disappointed with Cain, and Cain gets angry and starts making accusations, and he kills his brother. And Cain goes on to start this civilization, this new city. And it seems like every civilization sent has been built in the image of Cain. Whether you talk about Egypt or you talk about Babylon, or Assyria, or even Rome. And it's that spirit that comes out of the sea in Revelation. The spirit of power, of dominance, of control. And it's that spirit that we see in Revelation that is conquered by the Lion of Judah. And there's this really powerful scene in the book of Revelation. As the beast has been conquered and thrown into the sea, when John, writing, he says, Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And you turn. And it's not a lion sitting on the throne. It's a lamb. A lamb looking as if it were dead. But somehow, it's still alive. And has conquered the beast. See, it's that spirit of accusation 
that spirit of blame that is the spirit of Satan. That unholy spirit. That spirit that says, cast your accusations. Decide whose fault it is. Point fingers. Blame people. Blame people because someone needs to pay for what has been done. Blame people because there's always someone on the other side. And Paul talks about in, four, in chapter or verse 14, sorry, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 14. He says, For he himself is our peace, who's made two groups out of one, these groups that were fractured in the very beginning, that were separated, that started to see each other as others. He's made two groups become one. And he's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death sorry I lost my place let's look here let's go back by which he put to death their hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, both, through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. In this beautiful picture, Christ reconciling and joining two humanities out of one. Well, whose side is God on? Whose side both of them both of them I think Christianity might be the only religion whose greatest concern is not just simply in the restoration of the victim but also the restoration and reconciliation of the oppressor. See, see, most religions come and say, we want to take care of the one who's oppressed. We want to take care of the one who is hurt. We want to take care of the victim. And God in His great love and this reconciliation of all things, creating this one new humanity out of the two that were divided and separated is also concerned about the reconciliation, the restoration, the redemption of the oppressor. Breaking down that dividing wall of hostility and creating one new humanity where there were before two. But there in... The midst of that wall that divides 
stands Satan. Casting blame, making accusations, pointing the finger, trying to determine who's at fault. It's this woman you put here with me. She gave it to me and I ate it. It's this serpent that you put in the garden. It's his fault. We like to cast blame. We like to make those accusations. But inevitably, the promise of the Creator in the garden was eat this fruit. Eat this fruit and what will come out? death you ask well what's the problem in our world today in our country I would say the spirit of Satan is alive and well because we see people who are very quick to make accusation very quick to cast blame We see lots of people with the spirit of the accuser, who is the Satan, Hasatan. That's what his name means, the accuser. You you see very few people with with the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the advocate, who is for people, for for reconciliation, for redemption who is bringing that spirit into the world. I mean, look, look at Facebook. Look at any news TV show. Just look around our world and you see people pointing fingers, casting blame, making accusations. How many people do you see standing in the middle trying to bring reconciliation? trying to bring peace. I believe it was Jesus who said, blessed are the peacemakers. How many people do you see standing in the middle as advocates? Because that full implication of the gospel, the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has some really profound implications. And I think one of the greatest is this here in Ephesians. He talks about it in chapter 1. He talks about it again in chapter 2 and 3. But this reconciliation, this new humanity, this peace between people. But the greatest question in the midst of it is what do you do when someone's hurt you? Because let's just be honest. When we're hurt, that's our initial reaction, is accusation and blame. Someone needs to be at fault. But I think we can learn a lot from the way Joseph handles and addresses the situation. In chapter 50, as he's talking to his brothers, and his brothers have come back and they've devised this plan because their dad is dead, and they said, when, when dad's gone, he's going to hold a grudge against us and he's going to take it out on us. And so they say, hey, we got a message from, from dad. It says, don't, don't pay them back for what they did. Be nice to them. 
Be kind to them. Be compassionate to them. And his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are slaves, they said. But Joseph said, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. I think it's interesting, Joseph calls evil what it is. He says, you intended this for evil. It was evil. Without a doubt, it was evil. It was wrong. But there's also a difference between talking about someone and talking with someone. And what Joseph does is he has a conversation with the people who hurt him. Not about the people who hurt him. And he refuses to cast blame. He refuses the accusations. Yes, you intended this thing as evil, but God had greater plans. Did God cause this to happen? No. But in the midst of my hurt, in the midst of my pain, in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the sorrow, God was there. God was there. He was providing for me. He was making a way. He was feeding me. He was clothing me. He was doing everything he could to provide for me. And on the other side, when everything was good, God was still there. So he calls evil, evil. And he refuses to repay that evil. He refuses to repay the evil. And he speaks to the offenders, not about them. Refusing to play the role of God, he forgives. Refusing judgment that is rightfully his, he forgives gives. I think in Joseph's mind, there's this bigger picture of what's happening. Not just to him, but in the world around him. As Paul finishes in in Ephesians, he reminds the church that your battle, it's not against flesh and blood but against the rulers and the principalities and the forces of evil in this dark age. I think that's a pretty important reminder because most of the time our blame and our accusation goes to flesh and blood. It goes to people who don't look like us, think like us, agree with us. And we love to point the finger and cast the blame and make our accusations. having difficulty to see that this battle that's going on goes so much deeper than flesh and blood. That there's a spirit of Satan that is very pervasive in this world that has to be combated by the spirit of the advocate. One who can stand in between. Rabbi Akiva tells, there's a story I guess about Rabbi Akiva. And he has his students with him, his disciples, and they come to him and they ask a question. Rabbi, how can we tell 
when it is a new day? How can we tell when night has gone and morning has come? And Rabbi Akiva looks at his disciples and says, I don't know, what do you think? And one of them says, well, is it the moment that you can tell a date tree from a fig tree? And Rabbi Akiva says, no, no, that's not it. Another disciple jumps in and says, well, Rabbi, is it when you can tell the difference between a sheep and a dog? He says, no, no, that's not it either. Well, Rabbi, when is it? When is the moment you can tell that darkness or night has ended and day has come? And Rabbi Akiba looks at his disciples. And he says, it's the moment that you can look at the face of another human being and see your brother or sister. I think that is what it means to stand in the place of the advent to be filled with that spirit. Jesus is teaching, and there's a man with leprosy that comes to him. And Jesus has this conversation. The man says, will you heal me? Because if you're willing, you can do it. And Jesus looks at him with compassion. He says, I'm willing. Be healed. There's a Roman centurion, a soldier, who has a servant who is sick and dying. And Jesus asked, do you want me to come to his house and save him? And he says, no, just say the word, and from wherever you are, he will be healed. And Jesus heals the man. The disciples are in a boat, and the storm comes up. And they are afraid, and they are fear in fear of their life. And they cry out, Lord, save us. And Jesus looks at the wind and the waves and says, Peace, be still. And they are amazed. Because the wind dies down and the waters become calm. There's a paralyzed man who's been lying on a mat and his four friends decide that we need to get him to Jesus because we believe that Jesus can heal him. And they lower him down through the roof in the midst of this great crowd that he's teaching in this crowded little house. And Jesus forgives him of his sins. And that's when the accusations start. And they start to hurl insults at Jesus. And Jesus says, just so you know that I have the power not only to forgive sins, get up and take your mat and walk. And he does. There's a large crowd. And Jesus has been teaching them all day, and now they are hungry. And the disciples see a problem that we need food, but we don't have the resources, and we don't have what we need to take care of these people. Let's send them away. And Jesus says, no, you give them something to eat. And he has the 5,000 sit down on the ground and he begins by breaking bread and blessing it and passing it out. There's a woman who's caught in adultery and they drag her before Jesus with their accusations against her. And Jesus kneels down on the ground and begins to write in the sand. And he stands up and he looks at the crowd and says, the first of 
you who has done nothing wrong, you can throw the first stone. And he begins to ride again on the ground. And one by one, each of them walk away. Each of them walk away, going their separate way. Peter is in a boat with the other disciples. They see a figure coming towards them. And as he gets closer, Peter realizes it's Jesus. And he says, Jesus, tell me to come walk to you on the water. And he steps out of the boat. And as soon as he sees the wind and the waves, he begins to sink. And Jesus reaches out his hand and he lifts him up out of the water. Jesus constantly kept the company of sinners and tax collectors. One in particular was a man named Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector despised by the people. And Jesus in the crowd sees him up in a tree and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to stay at your house today. There's a woman at the well at midday drawing water. And Jesus sits down and talks with her. And it's a big deal, not just because she's a woman, but because she's a Samaritan woman. And Jesus offers her, a Jew offers a Samaritan living water. And because of what is offered to her, she knows that she has seen the Messiah. Jesus is on the cross. And there's two criminals, one on each side, one making his accusation, casting his blame, another begging for divine forgiveness. And there on the cross, Jesus lovingly says, Today, you will be with me in paradise. There's a blind man who's been blind from birth. And the question is, whose fault is this? Whose sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. This was done. So you can see God's power be healed. And the man can see. I just ask this morning, what spirit fills your life? What what spirit do people see coming out of you? Because when Jesus says that you're going to be this light, this city on a hill that's going to be seen by everyone, it's we're going to be seen by everyone if that's his spirit that's pouring out of our lives. Is it the spirit of blame and accusation? Or is it the spirit of the advocate? The spirit who is for you. The the spirit that you point to a death, a burial, and a resurrection and say, that was for me. Because God loved me in joining these two Humanities and making this new humanity in himself. That's that water 
that we say we die in and are raised to new life in, that's what it represents. That you are clothed in His Spirit. That you're raised to a new life. That you've been forgiven and you are now a forgiven sinner amongst a community of people that now forgive who take on the image of Christ, who are being formed in His image, and who are filled with His Spirit. Because the old Spirit, the Spirit that was in you, has been put to death. What Spirit? What Spirit fills your life? What do people see when they look at you? Is it indeed the dawn of a new day? Father, would you please, would you please once again help us put to death that spirit that leads to death? And Father, find life in your spirit. The spirit of the advocate, the helper, the counselor, the comforter. May your spirit fill our church. And may the spirit of your son fill this world. Because Father, we believe the lamb that was slain has conquered all. And we have hope in him. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for life eternal. We believe in you. And Father, we find our life in you. And we pray this in Jesus' most precious name. We offer you that invitation this morning. Come to Christ. Have your sins washed away in the water. Begin life new right now in this very moment. Begin anew. If we could pray for you, we would love to do that as well. We're going to have ministry staff and shepherds around the auditorium in the back. Whatever we could do to help you in your journey, come while we stand and we sing.